All right. Now we're going to dig into our passage for today. So if you guys want to turn to Genesis chapter 3, we also have the text in your worship guide. Now, it's likely that this is a pretty familiar passage for many people, and it might not be. I don't want to assume that. But for many of us, we've heard this story of what is often called the fall. But in our familiarity with this passage, I don't want us to miss what is being communicated today. It would not be an exaggeration at all to say that this is one of the most important chapters in all of Scripture. What we learn today shapes everything about our world, our lives. And so I want us to really dig in and to pray that God will help us to see things with a fresh look today. So let's read together. Buckle up. We're going to read the whole chapter here, chapter three. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you are taken for you are dust. 
and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was made, from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, we come to you humbly right now. We acknowledge that we are but dust. As we look at this passage, Lord, we know this is a sobering word. Lord, we're aware of the fall of mankind. We're gonna learn more about that today, but Lord, we want to also see the hope here, Lord, and we know that you are the same God of Adam and Eve, you're the same God of us. And Lord, the truths of you that were true then are true now. And so Lord, we cling to your word and we ask you to open up our hearts. Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look around sometimes into this world, I just get pretty discouraged. (laughs) It doesn't take long to look around and see that life is hard. Things don't always go as they should. Sometimes it actually feels like nothing goes as it should. It seems like everything is working against us sometimes. I mean, sometimes when I just wake up in the morning, before I even put my feet on the ground and I get out of bed, I'm flooded in my mind with a rush of all the things that I have to do that day, all the ways that I have to perform, that I have to please people, the anxieties that are weighing down on me, the pressures of work, the pressures of family, all of the things that come to me in that moment. I haven't even stepped out of bed. And then I go throughout my day and I fight through traffic and car accidents. And if I dare to turn on the radio or to look at the news on my computer, it doesn't get much better. Things about worries about the economy and global struggles, crooked politicians. We've got hurricanes totally destroying whole countries almost. If I ever stop and slow down for just a moment, I've got to be honest with myself too. I've got to look inside my own heart. I've got to face my fears and my insufficiencies. What if I die? What if I leave my family with no one to provide for them? What if I'm not enough? in my work? What if I let people down? What about all the warring desires in my heart? And when I even get some of those desires, I don't actually find that I'm satisfied. I don't know if this resonates with any of you guys, but we're filled with a broken, sinful, hard world. Sometimes I just stop and I think, is this actually how it's supposed to be? Is this what it's meant to be? The answer, of course, is no, it's not. This is not what it's meant to be. We live in a broken world. In Genesis 3, it helps us to understand why that is the way it is. This isn't just 
a children's fairy tale story, distant time in a distant land far away. Genesis 3 is the story of us. It's the story of our lives, of the world around us, of ourselves, of what we know to be true. The fall is foundational for understanding everything around us, for even our own faith. In this story, not only do we see the arrival of sin and death, but the good news is that we see hope. We see that God has a rescue plan, that he has planned from before time. He's going to redeem us from all of this. So yes, we're going to dive into some of the sadness and the heartbreak, but we're also going to look at the hope today. Now, when we look at Genesis 3, I feel like we need to just go ahead and say the same thing we've been saying so far in the first two chapters. Genesis is not interested in answering all of our questions. There are going to be things here that we just don't understand. And God doesn't seem too interested in dotting all of his I's and crossing all of his T's. I mean, really, how many animals talked at this time? Was it just the snake? Why does Eve not seem concerned at all that a snake is talking to her? She just doesn't even miss a beat. And what's the deal with these trees, these magical trees? Is it something physical in their properties or spiritual? Even deeper, why did God put the tree there in the first place if this could happen? We don't get answers to any of these questions. God is not interested in answering these things. Here is what he is interested in conveying, that he is our loving creator and that he made us and all things to flourish and thrive according to his good design. But if we choose to ignore and reject him and his design, it will be for our devastation and our ruin. Now, you might remember last week, Joel, as he was talking about the beauty of God's design, he referenced a picture of an eagle. An eagle is a majestic creature made to fly in the sky. When you see it, it's a beautiful thing to behold. But if that eagle decides that it knows better than its maker, and it's going to go outside of its design, and it decides it wants to be a fish, and it dives into the water to make its home there, it's going to be a devastating thing that ends in death. And this is the picture that we see in Genesis 3. Now, here's what we're going to walk through today. We're just going to kind of walk through this narrative. We're going to see how the story unfolds, and we're going to look at three things, in particular, the nature of temptation. We're going to look at the effects of the fall, and then we're going to see the hope of the gospel. It helps me to have a plan. I hope that helps you. So in chapter two, we see that God has set up mankind to flourish. He's set Adam and Eve up for success. He's given them a clear job. They have dominion over everything. And he's given them provision. He's giving them everything that they need. They can eat from anything in all of creation except for one tree. In enters the serpent. Now, the first thing that we learn from the serpent in the very first verse of chapter 3 is that he's crafty. And that's important to realize here. This crafty animal, he has an agenda. This is the great tempter, the great deceiver. And he's not going to come and just announce his plan. He's crafty. He's devious. He's not obvious in his appearance. He's not coming in in a red devil suit with the pitchfork and the tail and all that. And he's not going to be that obvious in his speech either. This is an important thing for us to take note of. 
Rarely does evil blatantly approach and announce its intentions for us. Think about it. Do you hear the voice in your head saying this? You know, you really should have an affair with that woman. You should leave your family. You should abandon your wife and your kids. It's going to ruin your life. It's going to ruin your reputation. You could lose your job, but you should go do that. It'll be good. Or, you know, you really should have that first drink, even though you know it's going to lead to an addiction that's going to ruin you. You really should do that. That's not how evil works. That's not what happens here either. The first step of temptation is that this serpent slowly begins to cast doubt on the word of God. And he does it to Eve in an unassuming way with a question at first. He says, now, did God actually say that you can't eat from any of these trees? And what we see is that with this conversation that Eve has with evil, by the end, God's words are completely lost. The serpent, he asks this false premise question. And then Eve answers, but her response of what God says isn't exactly accurate either. She adds the, oh, and we can't touch it. And then it goes all the way to the point where the serpent, he just completely denies the truth of what God had told Eve. But he does it in this devious, crafty way. He paints a beautiful picture of what is in front of her. He says, your eyes will be opened and that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I mean, sin sounds attractive to us most of the time. It looks attractive. I must say something here that might actually surprise you. What the serpent says to Eve is actually true. I mean, we don't have to read very far into the passage to see that those two things he just told her are actually what happens. As soon as they eat the fruit, Scripture says that their eyes were opened. And before they're banished from the garden, God says that they've become like God, knowing good and evil. These are the exact things the serpent told Eve would happen. And they did. So did he deceive her? Or did he tell her the truth? Well, both. Technically, what he said had some element of truth in it. But as a whole, it was completely false and misleading. What he didn't paint a picture for her was this, that an experiential knowledge of evil is not something to be desired, that the heartache of disobedience can't be forgotten, the danger of questioning God's word, the dissatisfaction and the death that would come if she did this. He did not say any of those things. His half-truth, half-lie muddied the waters about what God actually said. And then we have this situation where it's the serpent's word against God's word. And Eve is now in the position of judge. Now, below all of this, below the confusion of God's words, the serpent's real insinuation here is that, Eve, God's holding out on you. He has something good in this fruit that he doesn't want you to have. There's something else that's awesome and you're gonna miss out on it. That's where the FOMO comes in here. She thinks God must not love her enough to give her this good thing. The serpent's claim doesn't just cast doubt on God's word, it casts doubts on God, God's character. He makes it seem as if God is not a good provider, but he's a prohibitor. 
Despite the fact that Adam and Eve are living in paradise, they have every single need satisfied, everything that they could want. She gets the idea in her head that God is keeping something from me. He's restricting me. Now, God's words regarding the tree aren't a threat, but an acknowledgement of a healthy boundary. In that example we just referenced of the eagle, if that eagle decides to dive into the water, it's going to die. That's a natural boundary that is set up. It's in the best interest of the bird to remain within those bounds. This is something in my life that my wife and I are experiencing with our kids. The simple idea, you cannot run into the street. Even if you're chasing your favorite ball, even if there's a good reason. Now, if they choose to ignore me, that will be to their detriment. Am I mean for saying that they should not do this thing? No, I'm actually looking out for their best interest. Now, these are the same two tools that the enemy uses today to tempt us. He causes us to doubt God's word and to doubt his character. He makes sin seem appealing with these half-truths, and we doubt God's word and we doubt his love for us. And in the process, we put ourselves on the throne instead of God. Self is what is ruling our decisions. We want to be self-satisfied, self-made, self-aware. Friends, we've got to recognize the schemes of the enemy. He hasn't changed them in a long time. He still does the same thing with us. So let's continue in the narrative here. Eve gives in to the temptation. She takes the fruit and she eats it and she shares with her husband and he eats it. And we see that life as we know it will never be the same again. What's actually happening here could be considered a reversal of creation. The undoing of what God once called good and it affects everything. See a lot of Disney movies in my house. Beauty and the Beast has been on a lot lately. And it has this amazing picture of exactly what we're talking about. Because of the actions of one man, if you're not familiar with Beauty and the Beast, I'm sorry, I pity you, but I'm also gonna give you a brief synopsis right now. Because of the actions of this one man, the whole land falls under a curse. And it's not just to him, this man, this prince, who once ruled over his domain, is turned into a beast, just a shadow of what he once was. But it doesn't just affect him, it affects everything, his staff and his house. It affects the castle, it affects the land. Where there were roses, there's thorns and thistles. Where there were angels and cherubs, they turned to gargoyles. Everything is just a shadow of what it once was, and it's waiting, the whole movie, waiting to be freed from this bondage. This is a picture of what happens in the fall. Romans 8 actually describes it just like this. It says that creation was subjected to futility, to groaning, and it's waiting to be set free from its bondage to corruption. So in the fall, everything that was beautiful, full of life and abundance, is now turned to death and chaos. Pastors, authors, theologians have talked for a while about the ways that we see the fall affect us. And there are typically four areas that most people agree on that we can see the effects of the fall. And these are a broken relationship with God, a broken relationship with others, broken relationship with ourselves, and a broken relationship with creation itself. 
Now, this isn't a perfect breakdown for what we see here, but I'm going to use those four categories to help us understand what happens from the fall and also what we can see in our own lives. So first, a broken relationship with God. We see in the passage that Adam and Eve, after they sin, they must have immediately felt guilt. We know this because they hide. And this is a theme that we're going to see carry throughout this whole time, is that sin makes us hide. They hide from God first. Why do they hide? Well, Adam answers God when he asked, why are you hiding? Adam answers, because he's afraid. This is the first mention of fear in scripture. It certainly won't be the last, but the guilt that Adam and Eve feel for their sin, they feel it inside them. It makes them hide from God in fear. They know somehow innately they're standing before their creator who's holy and can't be in the presence of sin and they hide from him in fear. And in the same way that they felt the guilt and the fear before God, so do we over our sin. We can't escape it. Romans 5 says this about Adam's sin. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. By one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So we inherit this problem of sin, and we also feel the separation from God. This breach in relationship with our creator is the primary loss of the fall. It affects everything. It bleeds into all these other categories. So the second category is broken relationships with others. God said to Adam, it's not good for man to be alone. And yet due to the fall, all of us for the rest of time will feel a sense of isolation. Even when we're in the presence of other people, we will feel isolated. Adam and Eve had always been naked. We actually see that just before chapter three, the last verse of chapter two, the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. But now they're ashamed. The first thing they do after they eat the fruit is they realize they're naked and they hide. This is also the first mention of shame in scripture. Their fear made them hide from God, but their shame makes them hide from each other. Man is always hiding because of our sin. And just like Adam and Eve's pitiful attempt to clothe themselves with leaves, we also seek to hide behind silly things in life. Our shame makes us hide behind things, but we can't ever actually feel covered. And when God confronts Adam and Eve's sin here, we see the first marital fight. You could say the first domestic dispute. They pass the buck. They point the finger at each other. I personally have no idea what that's like. That has never happened in my marriage, ever. But this happens here. They can't even own up to what they do, and it's because there's a breach in relationship with each other. God says that it's always going to be this way now with others, that self is always going to supersede other. That's just going to be our innate sin desire. God says that the woman will always desire to control the man and that the man will always seek to rule over her. Both of these responses are sinful and selfish. This is not how it should happen in a marriage. This is not how it should happen at all in any relationship. But I sadly see this in my own marriage. I mean, this is the one person in my life that I have pledged undying love to, that I will lay down my life for, and for some reason, 
I get so upset when I have to do the dishes. Why is that? That's so silly. This is the one person I should put her needs above my own. And it goes beyond marriage. It's every single relationship that we have with others. All relationships are filled with conflict and tension. This is even sadly true for a woman's relationship with her unborn child. The words here is that she's going to have pain in her labor. And we still see this today in childbirth, whether it's families trying to get pregnant or the pain of carrying a child, the delivery, the after effects on a woman after, there's pain in this labor. Third category, broken relationships with ourselves. Now, I don't need to talk about this very much because all of us know this. If you're human, you are aware of the distorted desires within you, the contrasting things that you think and that you want. The apostle Paul certainly knew about this. He said, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. We're conflicted people. Not only do we point the finger at each other, but we often keep the most hostile emotions for ourselves. We internalize that fear and that guilt and that shame and the death. This is why we struggle with things like anxiety and depression and eating disorders, social anxiety. All the inner turmoil that we feel in our world is a product of the fall. We don't even have a right relationship with ourselves. We were created as perfect image bearers. Now we're fallen image bearers. Still bear the image of God, but it's distorted. All right, finally, on these cheery subjects, broken relationship with creation. Now the same words came to Adam that came to Eve. He's going to have pain and toil in his labor. All the work that he's going to do, he's going to feel this all the days of his life. No longer now is the natural world working with us. We don't have dominion over that in a symbiotic good relationship. Now the natural order is working against us. This is why animals are afraid of us and we're afraid of them. This is why so many of us aren't actually that happy in our jobs. We scrape out a living in our vocation, not for the joy and the satisfaction, the fulfillment of it, but to survive, to make a living. It's toilsome. You just do it to pay the bills. And if you could quit, you would. This is why there are natural disasters. There's a lot of heaviness here, and I want to acknowledge that. And this is not new to any of you. All of this brokenness, all of this sin, we see it in our lives. We see it in ourselves and in the world around us. And we have to sit in this to appreciate what's coming, the hope. The fall is so important for us because it doesn't let us wiggle away from the darkness. It confronts us. It confronts us in our sin and our brokenness and our desperation. But there is hope. This creator God who made mankind in his image and placed him in paradise, he does not leave us in this state. Remember, he had a rescue plan from the beginning. Even in death, there is life. We see little graces peppered throughout this entire story. We can track them here. First, God does not make Adam and Eve drop dead immediately. 
as he would be totally justified in doing, as he made it seem would happen if they ate from the apple. Yes, they in that moment, they begin a slow physical death and spiritually they have died, but God would have been totally justified in killing them right then. Next, we see that God initiates contact with sinful man. He calls out to them, he seeks them by name, even though he knew what they had done. He leads and prods them with gentle questioning that actually leads to repentance. He takes their fig leaves, this pathetic attempt to hide their shame and their sin, and he gives them skins to more adequately cover themselves. There is an indirect idea here that something has died to provide. Something had to die to cover them with these skins. And this obviously is a foreshadowing of Christ and what he's going to do. Now, the greatest hope, the greatest grace that we see in this passage is something that we call the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. And there's just a glimmer here, just a little glimmer of the gospel that's coming. Look in verse 15 with me. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This offspring of Eve that is promised in this moment is Jesus. This is the first glimmer that we have of what's going to happen, even though evil is going to look like it's won for a moment. It's not final. Man, Jesus, will receive this painful blow, this bite to the heel in this picture. Jesus' death. But Jesus will deliver a fatal blow to that serpent with his resurrection. Actually, Jesus perfectly redeems everything that the fall brings on. We can compare the stories almost of Jesus' life and see that he's the better Adam. He did everything that they didn't do. Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness with half-truths, half-lies. Satan actually uses scripture to try to get Jesus to sin. Wrap your mind around that. But Jesus doesn't fall. Jesus takes the curse in his death, the curse that is for us, and he receives all of the punishments that are listed here. Listen to these punishments. The sweat of the brow for man. Jesus didn't just have sweat. He sweated drops of blood leading up to his death. Thorns and thistles for mankind, but Jesus took a crown of thorns shoved on his head. The tree that brought death in this story, Jesus is on the tree that brings life through his death. Man is told that we will return to dust, but Jesus is laid in the dust, but he doesn't stay there. He takes our guilt and our shame and our fear. Romans 5 spells this out for us. For if many died through one man's trespass, that's Adam, one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So friends, what does this mean for us? I mean, we know this. Many of us would even say we believe this. But what does this actually mean for you and me? Two things. You don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to hide. Hear these words from Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died 
and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Did you catch that? We are hidden with Christ in God. You don't have to hide from God. You don't have to hide from yourself. You don't have to hide from others. You're not bound by your sin and your guilt and your shame. The old has gone and the new has come. You are Christ's and he is yours. You are hidden with Christ in God. Stop hiding. And two, we have hope. Even though we're surrounded by brokenness and death around us all the time, Jesus has restored our relationship with God, and one day he is going to make all things new. He's going to redeem it all. Revelation 21 tells us of this beautiful day. Just listen to this. Maybe even close your eyes and picture this day. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Friends, this day will come when Christ returns for us, his bride, and he makes all things new. Can you imagine that? Just picture, no more fights, no conflict, no unfulfilled desires, no cancer, no loneliness, no infertility, no anxiety, no depression, no fight against sin, no fear of death, none of it. This day is coming. Jesus is coming. And we hope and we long for that day. And as we wait, we can have hope now. He is even now redeeming things. Yes, we should mourn the brokenness around us. That is an appropriate response. When we see sin and death and brokenness, we should mourn. But we don't grieve as those without hope. We don't give in to the darkness, and we don't have to hide. We rejoice in the redemption that is happening all around us. We can rejoice that we're hidden with Christ in God. Think about the things each day that you see. I want to encourage you each day to look for signs of God redeeming things. Just his little graces he's peppered in that he does not need to do. Your family and your friends, a provision for a job, a ray of sunshine coming down, the rain that makes that grass grow that's been dead for over a month. God is redeeming things all around you every day. Look for it. Rejoice. I'll leave you with these words from John 1. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray. Jesus, we're banking on you. We put our full hope and our full faith and trust in you. That all of the things that we see and feel in this world around us that are not right, that are not as they should be, that you are gonna hold true to your word and you are gonna make things new. And Lord, that you have even done this already in our hearts. For those of us who know you, Lord, you have changed us. You've brought us from death to life. 
You're making us new. And Lord, I pray that when we look around at the world around us, we will understand our mortality. We will understand the effects of the fall, but that, Lord, we will understand what you have done in Christ, the hope that we have in the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.